This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on the SiriusXM network. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm your host this week. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I'm really happy to welcome into the studio my next guest, Mark Palatucci, who's the co-founder of Anki. Mark, thanks so much for coming in. Great to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. We were just chit-chatting at the break, and, and we're broadcasting from the Wharton School's campus in San Francisco, south of Market. And uh, Mark, your office just a couple blocks away, right? Yeah, that's right. We uh, in our earlier office actually was just right next door. Wow. We were in that building just on uh, Second and Bryant when we were uh, just right after we had raised our Series A funding. We were, I think, about seven people. And then it was a very crowded 40, 40 people at one point where wow. we were, uh, people were taking calls in the in the hallways. But yeah. uh, we've moved into a bigger space now. And yeah. It's still, for those of you who haven't been in this area, I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> area south of Market in, in San Francisco. It's It still has a pretty sort of rough and tumble vibe, but don't can, don't let that fool you. It is fantastically expensive <laughs> to be here. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's pretty crazy the last few years too. Yeah. So, Mark, give us the. Uh, so, first, let me just let me just uh, point our listeners to the website. You have got a great domain, Anki dot com. That's A N K I dot com. That's right, Anki dot com. And and your co-founder, head of cloud AI and machine learning. And I should point out, I believe you're an alumnus of the University of Pennsylvania. I am. Yeah. I am a, a Penn alum. I, was, uh, I graduated, I guess, almost 20 years ago from the engineering school. And in, I'm from Philadelphia, too. So in I, uh, computer science? I studied yeah. computer science. Yeah. And uh, I also went through, uh, we called it the beta test at that, at that time. It was uh, the new Penn Engineering Entrepreneurship Program. Oh, that, no way. Uh, yeah, was Tom it Tom Castle? Castle? Tom He's Castle still there. Started. Yeah, uh, I was just on campus a few a few uh, months back, actually yeah. uh, talking to his classes. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a great uh, wow. great well, program they have, and it's grown tremendously. Well, I yeah, I actually have a secondary appointment in the engineering school, so I know all those guys, and it's uh, it's a terrific place. Um, all right, so let's get into it. Tell us the elevator pitch for Anki. Anki is a consumer robotics and AI company. Uh, you know, myself along with my my two co-founders, we were all studying. AI, machine learning, robotics. Uh, we were doing uh, finishing PhD program at uh, Carnegie Mellon mm-hmm. in the Robotics Institute there, and um, you know this was going back you know ten years at the time. And you know what we really realized this is before hardware had gotten you know kind of big before the whole Internet of Things. That uh, we realized you know hardware getting cheaper, sensing getting cheaper, some really fundamental breakthroughs in AI, and um, we saw an opportunity to take a lot of the sophisticated science of robotics and apply it to mass market consumer products, mm-hmm. you know, the types of things that you could buy on Amazon for, you know, a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. And, uh, I think actually your, your co-host Rob, you know, was one of the, I think very first people in the Valley to recognize, I guess, kind of the, the whole Renaissance that was happening, you know, with hardware going back, you know, yeah. six, seven years. And, uh, you know, it was a very early investor in that stage and, you know, put money in nest and a few other, a uh, few other companies. So, yeah, so you had a, a big vision around consumer robotics, Internet of Things, that sort of stuff. Tell us a little bit about 
the what the product line is now and then we i want to talk about some of the products yeah sure yeah. so we um we very much believe what we call the bottoms up approach to robotics mm. so um you know the googles the hondas they can go out and spend a billion dollars on you know a 20-year r&d project and uh you know with autonomous driving or um walking robots and you know they haven't have to ship anything yet right we didn't have that luxury as a new company so what we started is what we call the bottoms-up approach is let's build a profitable business. Let's go into a segment um, where we can have a huge impact today and build an increasingly sophisticated robotics platform, an increasingly sophisticated stack of technologies to take on um, harder and harder challenges in, in consumer robotics. But do it in two- to three-year product cycles that um, will continue to grow the, the team's capability. Um, so over the last six years, you know, we've shipped uh, millions of robots. Um, we have um, built in... You know, starting in entertainment, um, we've built a you know very viable business, right? That has you know started out with kind of autonomous toy cars, you know, shrunk down uh, to you know kind of slot car sizes, and then since then we've introduced an entire uh, robotic character for the home, mm -hmm. um, and now we're pushing really deeply into autonomous robots for uh, for the home, yeah, um, and starting to get into things that are outside of entertainment and more into. Uh, utility, and that's a, a big area investment for us right yeah, now. Yeah, so let's just, you know, one of the things I like to do on the show, show is underscore strategies that that might be generic, that could be applied in other settings. So if I were to characterize that strategy, you said we don't have the luxury of billion dollars, so we have to find a way to get to demonstrate success, get to build a viable positive cash flow business around something we can get in more quickly. You started with an autonomous toy car and then the second product line was that is that cosmo that's the right second cosmo one. was the second line yeah and then that built a set of capabilities that you and your hope is you could take those into into broader markets. that's right yeah. so if you look at our entire roadmap uh, product roadmap yeah. it's really thinking about how do we leverage all the things that we've built uh to date and then bring that to a new application and yeah. really where we're at today after many years of work is a full end-to-end robotic operating system, if you will, you know, soup to nuts, yeah. all the way down to the hardware, up to the cloud, all of the AI and machine learning technologies. And not just how do you build it and do it, but how do you do it at scale where you got to mass produce uh, potentially millions of units at, you know, very healthy, uh, he healthy margins, you know, in a retail environment. Yeah. So let's drill down a little bit on on Cosmo, which is the that that's sort of the main product now. Is that right? Yeah. Right. So tell us a little bit about just describe the product for us. What does it cost? What does it do? Who are you sure, selling so to? Cosmo yeah. is the first um, inter smart, truly interactive uh, character for the home. Mm -hmm. So it's a robotic character, again, primarily for entertainment. Can entertain, play games with your kids. Yeah. It can, uh, you know, interact with your pets. Yeah. Um, and it's also a robotics platform that is being used heavily now in STEM education. Mm -hmm. So it comes with an entire SDK. We partnered with Google and MIT to build a scratch interface on top of the robot. So we have kids as young as, you know, six, seven years old yeah. building sophisticated AI applications and robotics applications without the PhD. Yeah. So um, there have been a few other stakes in the ground uh, on this so what's the oh geez you, the, the mind mind uh, ro uh mindstorm mindstorm yeah it was oh. a lego product right mm -hmm. and right. that was also an mit uh collaboration as i With recall the, yeah. the scratch team at mit oh right. so what so i, I that's or no that's, sorry that's a different it was a different team but yes it, that's an acronym i don't know so scratch so is, scratch is a programming language it's okay. a visual programming language probably the most popular 
um, you know, in the world today, design designed primarily for kids on the age of maybe eight yeah. to twelve. Yeah, it used years to be old. called something. It was something else. It came out a logo or something. I'm trying to remember. I was I was a PhD student in the MIT AI lab, and I remember they were working on some of that mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but it's it's now called Scratch. It's mm-hmm. an open source uh, yeah, programming right. language that allows people to program using visual using elements. visual, yeah. you know, drag and drop blocks. Um, you know, you don't have to write any lines of code, yeah. but you can, in many cases, write some pretty sophisticated programs. With yeah. It. And so you are essentially a way to actually interact with the real world using that. Yeah. I think that, you know, yeah. we've built and Co- Cosmo has, you know, over 2 million lines of code in it. Wow. And yeah. it, you know, does everything from face and emotion recognition, um, path planning, object detection, building maps of mm. navi- you know, to navigate around an environment. And um, we've abstracted away all of that complexity and put, you know, a simple to use interface such that with literally just dragging and dropping a few blocks of code, you know, someone could write a program that says, you know, run, cert- run around the environment, pick up the first block that you see, and then give it to, you know, the first person you see who's smiling. Yeah. Right. And that type of thing before really the interface that we've built and this integration that we've built, um, that's something that could not be done on any other type of STEM STEM product. Yeah. I mean, previously the types of things that you would see is, you know, very, very simple, um, you know, maybe make the motors drive, drive forward right. five seconds, turn left, blink a light. Um, but really this is the first that abstracts, I think, the complexity of a lot of, um, you know, AI, computer vision, machine learning, and, uh, and makes it accessible in a really easy to use form. Well, I got so many questions. So, <laughs> so I mean, it's so super cool. But, but the the first question is, I'm guessing that the fraction of your users who who program is probably relatively small. That's right. Uh, and so, I, I, the generic question I want to ask is, if you've got this, how do you think about the trade off between opening this thing up and making it a toolkit for some, for some advanced users and lead users versus getting the volumes you need? in something that can be bought and delivered as a toy or that's yeah. a that's yeah. a excellent excellent question and i think that um you know for us our primary focus has always been on kind of the core entertainment market yeah that's the big market yeah. and if we were just making a stem product and we've seen you know a lot of other companies try to do this yeah, um, yeah. it is enormously difficult if not impossible to try to make a sustainable business on like a pure education right. uh type of product um so for us it's really a very tiny marginal investment on top of the in all of the other infrastructure um, that we've built to support mm-hmm. you know a much bigger broader addressable market yeah. of you know millions and millions uh, of families around yeah. the world so yeah. um, that's the one of the reasons that we can do it so with a very small team of you know really you know three four people um, we can access a whole uh, another type of market you know we've also just by know, opening it up and making it a toolkit by opening right? up, yeah. creating the interfaces yeah. to the underlying engine, yeah. um, and really, you know, partnering with the great folks at you know MIT at mm-hmm. Mitch Resnick's group, mm-hmm. um, as well as the folks at Google who have you know now uh, done a lot of work with that team as well. Um, so you know, really, just kind of hooking all the different components together to create something that I think is you know hands down best in class. Yeah, and 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 just to close the loop on the that main market that can that for Cosmo this main product right now. Uh, tell us what wh- maybe what the mo- what the most common use case or behavior that this robot has for is is this chil- children right that are that are buying our parents so are buying have, it for children we yeah. have uh, it's it's really um, families and what's families, really surprising yeah. about it is um, you know at first glance is that we have probably a good 
you know, 70% of the users are, are definitely kids. So we've mm-hmm. got, you know, 8 to 12, 13 mm-hmm. years old is kind of the core, uh, you know, the core demo. But we've got really 30, depending on the country, but yeah. on, you know, on average, roughly 30% of the users that are, you know, 35 plus. Yeah. So there's definitely the second, um, most of our users, it falls in this kind of bimodal distribution, yeah. right? With a big spike around that, you know, kid demo. And then a lot of users between 35 and I'd say 50 yeah. that are using more of the, you know, advanced features of the app that are programming it using the SDK, yeah. using, you know, even the scratch interface. Yeah. Um, and what, just are, what, are the, what are the middle school, what's the mainstream middle school st- uh, student doing with it, yeah. I think uh, the so we have as part of the product built in is what we call Code Lab, mm-hmm. and Code Lab is a um, basically the the scratch interface. So it allows you to write you know very simple programs. There's a whole um, series of curriculum that's yeah. been kind of developed yeah. around this, and it's also a great place to feature content. In fact, our own developers use it to To create new content for yeah. the robots, so new types of games, new types of activities, mm-hmm. and it's really the quickest way to create content. And we also have, because we have this third-party uh, SDK in this community now, um, we are now able to take, you know, people are publishing, if you will, yeah. and submitting. We had a contest recently where users submitted applications, and now those are are baked directly into the app and, you know, being used by, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. Mm. Tell us a little bit about the architecture of the product itself. Is it a, is it a, is it an Android operating system or how, how does that all work? And then, and then what, what are, what does it have in terms of sensors and then actuators? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Cosmo is, is, is very complicated. It's over, yeah. uh, 350 parts, <laughs> uh, four, you know, four different drivetrains. So you've got, you know, two motors, you've got a lift yeah. in the front, you've got a head, um, so it's a, it's, it looks like a little tractor. It looks like a little <laughs> bobcat or something. That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it's also a character, right? So yeah. a big piece of what we haven't talked about yet is this entire emotion engine and character engine that, uh, that we've built around it. And really the, um, the goal for us uh, with Cosmo is how do we bring a feature film quality character, the type mm-hmm. of thing you would see in a DreamWorks movie mm-hmm. or Pixar film, and how do we bring that to life? And we literally went out and hired animators um, from from those companies, you know, brought them in. We built a whole animation team. We built the first pipeline between feature film animation tools like Maya and physical robot controls and you know low level motor motor control. Um, to your question, you know, you asked, it's got um, you know cameras that it uses for uh, object detection, IMU, right, inertial measurement units, so uh, gyroscopes, wow. accelerometers um, <laughs> that we use. And um, we there is no. You know, operating system per se, and it's not running Android, it's not mm-hmm. running iOS or anything like that. Um, in Cosmo, one of the ways that we're able to make the product for mass market and keep it under two hundred bucks, so it retails for about one seventy nine. Mm-hmm. The way that we do that is there's a companion app. So in a lot of the computation, a lot of the uh, really sophisticated AI computer vision processing is happening in the background in the app. So the user on the supercomputer we all have in on our the supercomputer that you've yeah. paid eight hundred bucks right. for that's right. carrying around your pocket. Yeah. Um, and um, so we don't have to put you know very very expensive processors yeah. you know in the robot itself. So the robot is primarily on sensing the world. Um, there is you know some onboard computation that that's happening. Uh, but a lot of the really, really heavy-duty stuff mm-hmm. happens, you know, in the companion app, and that's uh, again the reason that we can uh, make it so cost-effectively. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be, you know, probably on the order of a, a cell phone, right? And there's no yeah. very, very tiny market for that. Yeah, actually, you raise a very good point. It's got to do almost everything a cell phone has to do. That's right. Yeah, and have actuators. Yeah, so, yeah, that's right. And I think at lower volumes. That's right. Yeah, right. And so it's gonna, yeah, it yeah. is that yeah. is changing. You know, Moore's law at work. Hardware continues to get yeah. cheaper. I mean, I do think that. Um, 
you know, the types of things that we're working on now. You know, the big feedback from our customers, right, has been, um, you know, we love it, but we really want this robot to live with us. We want this robot to be 24-7, you know, on. We don't want this, you know, don't have to pull up my phone or give my kid my phone yeah, every time yeah, that, I you see. know, I want to use the product. Yeah. So um, I do think that with this latest generation of chips that's coming out, the ability to pack you know, more and more of that computation, you know, into a small package and still sell it at, you know, healthy margin, you know, around a $200 price yeah. point. You know, that's, that, that is definitely the trend. And then you have the cloud too, which you can, in the same way that you offload computation to the mm. phone, you can now push that up to the yeah. cloud to do much more sophisticated, you know, speech recognition, natural language yeah. processing, these types of things. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on the Series 6M network. This is Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Mark Palatucci, who's the uh, co-founder and head of cloud AI and machine learning at Anki, and their current biggest product is Cosmo, which is a, a, a robot for the consumer. Um, Mark, I wonder if you could take us back to the beginning. So tell us the origin story and how you put the team together. You said it was six years ago? Yeah. So we started actually working in the company back in 2008. Mm. So we were kind of moonlighting as, as PhD students. And we really, we worked on it. We had this routine. Every Saturday, we'd get together, we'd get bagels, and uh, we would just work the entire day um, on our, what became our first product, uh, Anki Drive, and, and then uh, subsequently Anki Overdrive. And uh, we worked for two years. We, um, in 2009, we finally had a, f a working physical prototype. We have it on display now and right in yeah. our, our main lobby. We filed some initial uh, patents around that, and we did a lot of uh, continuations after that. And it was really around 2010 when we said, look, we've got this prototype. Um, patents are expensive. We need to start raising money. You know, but prior to that, we had been putting, you know, every month or two, we'd each put 200 yeah. bucks into a shared yeah. checking account. <laughs> Um, you know, and since then, you know, we've now raised $200 million as yeah. a company and, um, gone through, you know, four rounds of, uh, you know, uh, priced equity. So uh, let me, let me just stop you there for a minute. There's all kinds of <laughs> interesting threads there, but the, the first one I want to, I want to pick up on is what was the original product vision when you guys were in literally in the garage or in the lab, what was the original yeah. product vision? The, yeah. the product vision, um, you know, a lot of us had worked on, uh, autonomous driving. Mm -hmm. So that was in general, um, you know, a very big, hot research area at yeah. the time. Uh, it was something we cared about. And, but really the thing that excited us was consumer applications. Mm -hmm. And the epiphany that we had really around 2007, before there was this whole uh, IoT craze, you know, the iPhone launched. And, you know, that, the uh. acceleration of that made us realize the ability to interact and control physical devices, you know, from a phone to potentially offload computation so you could make these things absurdly cheaper. So I think recognizing the, the first, very first stages of what became this kind of IoT movement and then adding on, you know, the robotics pieces, right? So sensing, uh, you know, the AI, the machine learning, yeah. path planning, all these types of things. So we started, um, you know, Cosmo was actually part of original Series A pitch going back to oh, 2011. Really? Yeah. Um, and we had the prototypes of Drive. We knew that we wanted to evolve that into a character. But really the pitch going back to the beginning of the company was about consumer robotics is, a, is going to be a big emerging area. Hardware getting cheaper, sensing getting cheaper. You know, the accelerometer gyro in your phone, that cost 50 cents. You know, 15 years ago, that level of accuracy would have been $100,000. Um, and in fact, the technology has gotten so good 
that they deliberately make these things noisy because it would violate il- uh, military export restrictions because uh, they could be used in missile guidance and things yeah. like that. So um, sensing because of MEMS technologies had a uh, you know massive, massive uh, you know wave of innovation and things have gotten incredibly, um, incredibly cost effective. So you know our pitch was like let's build the platform and the foundation to build robots for consumers at mass market million unit scale. And uh, and so this actually this is very Cosmo even was very consistent with the original right. vision and and so the second thread I wanted to to point out or I wanted to follow up on is you you casually dropped the fact that you'd raised two hundred million dollars so that's <laughs> you know it, it, we probably should have raised that earlier in the conversation this is a, <laughs> this is a big this is a big opportunity at least your investors perceive it as a big opportunity talk talk a little bit about about. Uh, fundraising and about the fundraising milestones. What did you have to prove before you could raise that first institutional money, and then and then what have you had to prove in subsequent rounds? Yeah, I yeah. think um, you know we raised our first. We raised about a half a million dollars in convertible debt. Yeah, that was the very first kind of yeah. seed financing from angels, uh, presumably, and that yeah. was really with um, super super early you know prototypes that you know we had videos of that maybe worked seventy yep. percent of the time and. You know that got us, um, you know, really the ability to to start to do some of the the DFM work to start to build more robust prototypes. But ultimately, it was Series A. Um, you know, we went, we did the Sandhill Shuffle, yeah, um, going back to uh, beginning of two thousand and I guess end of two thousand eleven, beginning of two thousand twelve. And at that point, we had physical working robot prototypes. So you know, we went, you know, up and down. Uh, talked to a lot of different firms, and um, what's amazing is just you know the the wildly different theses that you know investors have. So yeah. um, you know what we realize is that nobody really knows. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know we're very lucky to um, you know connect and uh, you know with Andreessen Horowitz, yeah. and um, this really resonated with them. It resonated with their software eats the world. They saw this as you know software eating. I guess initially the entertainment and, and toy. Mm-hmm. Market and then growing into other consumer verticals mm-hmm. beyond that, and they really believed in the robotics as a platform. Um, that consumer robotics was going to be, you know, a big industry over the next, you know, ten to fifteen years. We're not going to have less robots. We're going to have right. more. Um, and they led uh, a Series A into the company, and they led, uh, you know, was ultimately a twelve million dollars Series yeah. A round. Amazing. How, uh, roughly, and that was before hardware actually got. Yeah, I was going to say Nest was was pre Nest, pre Nest, yeah, which was one of the big ones. Um, what r- roughly how many BCs did you talk to before you got that term sheet for the Series A? Um, I think it was probably in the order of ten. Yeah, we ended up getting yeah. a couple of term sheets. Um, yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing there was, uh, again, you know, we had some people that, you know, we were the goal, the target for the round was 10 million. You know, people told us, oh, you're raising too much. You should really be raising, you know, four or five. And if you talk to anybody with hardware experience, and there are very, very few to begin with, right. they all said, you guys are not raising anywhere close to enough. Right. You should be raising 20, 30. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, we were, you know, very lucky to, uh, you know, connect. And, you know, a lot of it's timing. And, uh, you know, that really got us off to the races. Yeah. I, I'm going to just editorialize on two points here. The, f- the first is you guys were really successful in fundraising. I mean, the normal number when I, I mean, I would say the median number for somebody who has successfully raised m- money, it's more like 40 to 50 mm-hmm. VCs uh, they've met, met with. And so you were really successful. And I think uh, part of the reason for that is, you know, look, you were, you were, you know, PhDs coming out of Carnegie Mellon with some core technologies. And often that is the kind of thing that VCs perceive as 
having the potential to have a, a deep moat around a business and becoming something really big. So that that's one of the reasons I think that, that it explains it. Um, but the second thing I was going to say, something it just underscore something you said, which I think is really important. There are a lot of different theses that VCs have. And one of the mistakes I see entrepreneurs making is they, they respond to every criticism, every suggestion, every crazy idea. If you think about it, you guys know better than anybody what this thing should be. It's not to say you don't listen to others, but you got to be really careful not to change your vision based on all these people you're mean with because – you know, only one, in your case, one in 10 or two in 10, but in most cases, one in 50 is going to actually believe in you. And if you, if you try to respond to every one of them, that's, that's a fool's, fool's errand. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, uh, you know, I was meeting with, uh, you know, a friend and, and mentor of mine, Sebastian Thrun, who, uh, you know, of, of Stanford and started Google X and Udacity and a bunch of other things. And he had an interesting comment the other day where he said, you know, fundraise, he loves the fundraising process because it really helps you to get your story super crisp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, as you iterate, as you go and like the story gets continually better and better and better. And, um, that's one of the reasons I think why it's actually good to, you know, your best leads are usually maybe, you know, are not necessarily a little the, later in the process, yeah. a little bit later in the process because yeah. your, your pitch deck will definitely get a lot better and the story yeah. will get a lot crisper. And, um, you know, that was definitely true, true. in probably every round that we've done. What, what, what's it like to have a legend like Mark Andreessen on? He's the one of your investors. He's on your board, right? He's yeah. on the board. Yeah. That's gotta be pretty amazing to have somebody like that you yeah. know for me it's um you know on a, on a day-to-day basis yeah. you don't really think about it right? yeah because yeah. you know we're just we're in board meetings and you know obviously you know super smart guy and you know challenges you on all the things that you should be challenged yeah. on and whatnot um but you know for me if i if i take a step back it, it is actually pretty fun you know i was the geeky kid in my basement with a 1200 baud modem you know on a slip ppp connection downloading the very first um, you know, web browser, yeah. you know, Mosaic, yeah, that these guys wrote yeah. at, yeah. um, you know, in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I remember the very, very first time that I saw, you know, pulled up this browser and I saw, you know, put a URL in, I saw an image come down. I mean, that, I remember it was sort of like this epiphany moment. Right. I was probably, I don't know what a teenager, you know, um, yeah. middle school, high school, something like that. And, uh, yeah, I just remember that being like this huge wave of emotion. Like this was going to be like a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I ended up, you know, very soon after that, actually creating the very first website for my high school. Wow. Uh, it was like kind yeah. of a graduation yeah. project. Yeah. It was like 1995. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, there is some kind of interesting connection and it's really fun, uh, you know, fun to kind of connect all the dots for me when I think about that. You know, we just have a minute left, but, uh, you know, I, I did my PhD in, as I said, in the MIT AI lab, and it's a little amusing to me to watch, it's 30 years ago, right? So it's a little amusing to watch, to watch how, this is actually now a trendy thing and people are actually know what it is, but what's, what's your take on, on the current boom in AI slash machine learning? Is this all for real? Is it overhyped? What's, what, what are your thoughts? It's in the middle. Yeah. So there have been absolutely very legitimate, um, significant breakthroughs. If you look at, you know, the field of, you know, speech recognition, the field of computer vision, right. You know, pretty much changed, um, in the last five years. And, you know, previous 30 years of work have been completely invalidated yeah. by, uh, you know, modern deep learning methods. Combine that with the dramatic advances in hardware, specialized AI chips, you know, GPUs, everything that NVIDIA is doing, all the cloud stuff going on. Um, so there is no doubt, you know, we've, we've, we've broken through right. a lot of traditionally hard problems. Um, is there anything that we've done now that's going to get us to, you know, truly generalizable AI? Um, you know, I have not yet seen... Right. 
you know, enough there that makes me think that, you know, all of the hype, you know, is justified. So I think there, there is certainly some hype that's justified. We see it, um, you know, in, in a lot of the big, you know, hardest problems of computer science that we've now finally, uh, finally cracked. But uh, I think we're still barely scratching the surface yeah. in AI and, and a long way to go. And how, where do you come down on the question of how worried we should be about general intelligence and yeah. yeah, I think that's totally overhyped by a lot of misinformation in the news. I mean, it, if you notice, there's nobody who's actually a practitioner in the field, nobody that's actually practicing, you know, really building AI, that's, that's building robots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't have robots that can, you know, go into an apartment and take out the trash. You know, yeah. we've been to the moon. <laughs> um, and, you know, there is a, long, a large amount of work that needs to happen yeah. between um, now and when um, – you know, I think any of this is 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 going to be you know any sort of serious threat. Yeah. All right. Well, well, Mark, this was super interesting. Thanks so much for making the trip. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right. For more information about Anki, just go to Anki.com. It's A-N-K-I.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.